Welcome to the final episode in this first season of Progcast, a podcast for progressives and open-minded people. Over the course of this season, we've been discussing academic freedom with various figures in South African academia, each bringing a unique perspective to the topic of academic freedom in general, and also the state of academic freedom in South Africa. First, a word about our sponsor. This series has been brought to you by the Friedrich Naumann Foundation for Freedom. They're a remarkable international NGO that's always ready to support the work of young liberals around the world. And we'd like to say a huge thank you to them for their support of this project. Today's guest is Dr. Max Price. Dr. Price is best known for having been vice chancellor of UCT for 10 years from 2008 to 2018. Acting as the university's principal, during one of the most turbulent times in its history with student protests in 2015 and 16. He's a medical doctor by profession and a public health specialist. And he's also served as the Dean of Witz Medical School. And he's no stranger to youth politics and activism either. He served as president of the Witz Student Representative Council from 1976 to 1978 and was also an executive member of NUSAS, the National Uni Union of South African Students. In 1977, he was detained by the apartheid security police and held in solitary confinement for almost two weeks at John Forster Square because he was considered a threat to state security. Dr. Price, welcome to the show. Thank you. We should, we should add that the security police were really misinformed about that. As you know, we've had some previous guests on the show who have criticized some of the decisions you've made as VC of UCT, particularly one relating to the disinvitation of Danish journalist and free speech activist Fleming Rose. Now, one of the reasons we invited you on the show is to give you an opportunity to respond to this criticism and offer your version of events. But that's not all we're interested in in this episode. I thought maybe we could first have a bit of a conversation about a topic that I'm sure is quite close to your heart, and that is the University of Cape Town as an institution. Now, before apartheid, UCT emerged as a kind of bastion of liberalism and academic freedom in South Africa. For example, during the 1930s, racist, anti-Semitic, Afrikaner nationalist groups like the Afrikaner Nationale Studentenbund, they intimidated non-white students and Jewish and progressive members of the UCT community. They tried to shut down their activities and they tried to shut down their speech. And UCT's first vice chancellor, John Beattie, threw the organization off campus in response. Now, do you think UCT has a tradition or a legacy of academic freedom? And do you still think that that is the case today? Yes, I think UCT has a very proud legacy, a proud history of uh, protecting academic freedom and protecting free speech. And I'm going to use those two not synonymously. That's why I make mention both of them. Um, and uh, it was recognized as one of the sites of resistance to apartheid when in 1959 the so-called extension of universities Act was uh, passed, UCT and WITS as well, were really the only two universities that uh, strongly protested the exclusion of black students and the creation of um, racial universities around the country that was going to follow from the exclusion of black students um, and found various ways, even after that, of um, Break, of finding loopholes in the law, getting around the law so that students would be, black students would be able to come to university. For example, uh, it was possible for a black student to come to UCT if the course they wanted to study was not um, taught at any black university. And so UCT created courses. The, the most well-known one was called Kaggle, Comparative African Government and Law, uh, which was presented as something that didn't exist anywhere else. And black students all said they wanted to study Kaggle, and then through that they got permits from the minister to come and study at UCT. So, and there were ways of getting around some of the restrictions on Group Areas Act. But having said all of that, um, one doesn't want to conflate resistance to apartheid with academic freedom or free speech. It is one element of academic freedom because one of the dimensions of academic freedom is a dimension that inheres in the institution. So there are really two components to academic freedom. There's the rights of individuals who are academics to do certain things, such as to research whatever they want to research and to teach what and how they want to teach. But there's also the rights of institutions, and the rights of institutions relate to who they teach, who they admit as, uh, as students, who they appoint as staff members, so the right to decide who should teach and 
protecting the university and the academics against interference from outside um, sources, not only government, but from other sources as well. And in that regard, by and large, UST also has a good record because it was uh, attempting to access, to allow black students access at a time when this was not government policy. But it also has a blemished record. Um, it allowed black students access but didn't allow them to participate in a whole lot of social activities like swimming in the swimming pool or participating in socials and, and formal events. Um, so it was a qualified uh they were trying to walk a tightrope because they believed that to the limited extent that they were finding loopholes, that would be closed down. And one of the uh, really uh, regretful events was with, with around the so-called Mafeji affair in 1968. Archie Mafeji was a, a, an anthropologist. He was a, put, interviewed and offered the job at UCT uh, in 1968. He was coming back from overseas. And it appears, well, we know that the government, the Minister of Education, contacted the Vice-Chancellor and the Council and the Chair of Council and said that they weren't allowed to appoint him and they must withdraw the offer and threatened the university with other sorts of consequences. Now, we don't know what that what would have really materialized, historical counterfactual, but it's likely there might have been cuts in funding or other restrictions on the loopholes that the university had found. The council decided to withdraw the invitation, um, and that triggered a massive protest, one of the um, landmark protests in UCT's history from students and some staff who, after a meeting uh, in Jamison Hall, uh, marched down and occupied the Brem, what's called the Bremner Building, the administration building, and uh, occupied it for nine days. They were not successful in changing the council's view, and after nine days, the, the occupation ended. So... That is an example of what well, just one of many where the university did not uphold academic freedom or felt that they were not able to resist the pressures of the state. So there are examples on both sides. In, interestingly, I was appointed in 2008, as you said, which happened to be the 40th anniversary of the Mafeji affair in the same month. Um, my inauguration was in the same month, and we marked that by renaming the Senate room the Mafeji room um, and apologizing to the family uh, and uh, instituting a number of memorial things to to recognize that. I think one of the things that emerges possibly as a discussion point from the Mafeja affair is that the vice chancellor was put in quite an awkward position in terms of managing the institution, right? There was this demand placed on him by the state, and we can only imagine what the apartheid government said to him. You appoint this guy, and we're going to cut your funding, you know, the future of the institution depends on this decision and put him in that kind of position. And so possibly what emerges from that is this debate between principle and pragmatism. We know on the one hand that it was the right thing to do to appoint him on principle. You know, he was offered the position on merit. He was the best person for the job. And the only reason why he wasn't given it is because he was the wrong skin color. Right. But on the other hand, the vice chancellor had to make this decision. Um, you know, do we look after the future health of the, of the university? I think possibly this is a, an interesting segue into talking about the role of a vice chancellor. For you, is it the role of the vice chancellor to always make sure that you're doing the right thing on principle? Or are there pragmatic considerations that sometimes override those considerations in principle? Look, I don't think it's just as a vice chancellor. Um, I think the challenge is... Um, not, not, there, there's some particular challenges that relate to being a vice chancellor, which is that you're balancing lots of interests, lots of stakeholders. I mean, I think it's the most difficult job in the world in the sense that you've got so many stakeholders and you have the long-term interests of the institution that you have to protect. Your, your first priority is to make sure the institution survives. Um, and if you see a threat to its survival, you have to take that into account in the decisions you make. Then, of course, it mustn't just survive, but it must survive as a university that can attract the top scholars, attract the top students, money for research, and deliver on its mission, which is to advance knowledge and to transmit knowledge to the next generation. So those clearly are the priorities, and you do balance up uh, that. So I don't really uh, condemn Chinese university presidents who still run their universities, but have to do so without being able to access Google and international search engines and have all of those searches screened. Now, that's clearly the state is intervening. Those universities have very limited 
autonomy. They have very little autonomy. They have very little academic freedom. Autonomy and academic freedom are not the same thing. But they have very little academic freedom in the sense that they can't access so much information around the world. Do I think they should resign? No. Do I think they should close the university and say better not have a university? No. The evidence is they are producing, you know, hundreds of thousands of PhDs, new science, new research, technology, and they are improving the lives of people um, who are getting the benefit of that education. So it's a balancing act. It's a trade-off. But you want to um, you, you want to aspire to be as open and as free as possible. I think that the other tension, so that's particularly related to being a vice chancellor, but the broader issue is the weighing up principle-based action against consequentialist-based action. Um, and that would apply to all of us in all the decisions we take on a daily basis. Um, quite often, uh, you know what the right thing is to do and what you'd like to do, uh, but what would the, are, are the consequences worth it? Um, and sometimes those consequences are setting a bad precedent about closing down freedom of speech, and you decide to let it go to, ha- to, to tolerate that speech, even though a whole lot of other things are negative because the consequences of closing down would be a sort of thin edge of the wedge, setting precedence, etc. Other times, the consequences are so serious, and Fleming Rose is, a, is an example of that, that you decide in this case um, it's better, uh, it would be better to, uh, we can explain why this is a unique situation, why it doesn't become a precedent for all future invitations. I think what's emerging from this conversation is it seems that you might have a slightly different conception of what academic freedom is. Um, so before we get on to anything else, would you like to perhaps explain your conception of academic freedom to us? Uh, yes, but I, I hope if you do some research, you'll find it's not my conception. I think that what I'm going to say to you is the standard conception. Um, it's the South African, what I'll call the South African conception, which you've been reflecting in the podcasts, that in my view is the limited and unhelpful conception, but I don't think it's the standard or the mainstream conception. So what is the South African conception? The South African conception is rooted in the way that academic freedom became popularized in South Africa under apartheid. And T.B. Davey, the, uh, after whom the eponymous lecture, academic freedom lecture is named, was a vice chancellor in the early 50s of, at UCT. And he coined this idea that academic freedom is the right of the institution and the individuals in that institution to teach what they want to teach, who they want to teach, how they want to teach it. So curriculum processes are in the, in, are, cannot be touched by anyone outside. And, um, and who to appoint, uh, who should be allowed to teach. And that was, he wasn't, but, but, and people somehow have come to regard that as the, the gold standard or the definition of academic freedom. It isn't at all. And it's, it's, it's very limited definition. And it's, it was the definition that was relevant at that time because they were responding to an autocratic government, which was trying to tell universities who to admit, who to appoint, and influence curricula around, along national socialist, Christian national education lines. Um, but now we are beyond that, and we need to get back in touch with the world's view of what academic freedom is about. And I think that the sort of standard view is that in a university, there are two zones. There's the academic zone, which uh, is the classroom, the seminar room, the journal and publications, uh, the laboratory, and then there is the public zone, which is where other activities take place that one would norm- not normally think of as academic activities. So student activities, student newspapers, societies, debating union, public, some various kinds of public lectures, particularly where societies invite someone onto campus to give a lecture. Now, in the standard view, academic freedom applies to the academic zone, and freedom of speech applies to the other zone. Now, now we're talking about the, the, the rights of individuals or the freedoms of individuals. We first talked about the freedom or the right, the academic freedom for the institution, which is who to appoint and to design curricula. But when it comes to individuals, I think that what's also compounded our understanding in South Africa is the South African constitution, which I think has it wrong. South African constitution lists academic freedom as one of the four freedoms of expression. Which, which means it's a freedom for an individual, not for an institution. And secondly, it fails to draw any distinction between what is included in academic freedom that is not already covered 
by freedom of expression. So freedom of expression lists freedom of the press, uh, artistic freedom. Okay, but those are also part of academic freedom. But there's nothing in the as as if one simply takes it at face value that is included in academic freedom that is not a freedom for everyone. In fact, the clause 16.2 says everyone has the right to freedom of expression, which includes academic freedom. Well, what does that mean? Does the bus driver have a right to academic freedom? How is that different from freedom of expression? So I think one has to draw a much clearer different distinction between freedom of expression and academic freedom. Now, freedom of expression is one of the is one part of it, but academic freedom is a particular freedom that academics have. Academics who are credentialed as academics, they subscribe to certain disciplines, they do their work using those disciplinary tools, uh, evidence, research methodologies, um, etc. There may be different disciplinary tools in different disciplines. That's fine. Theology will be different from law, will be different from science. But one recognizes scholarship, and I think it's globally recognized in a certain way. And those academics, once they achieve the credential of being a professor and being tenured, generally that's the, 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 the point at which they become credentialed, then acquire the rights to do any research and to say anything within their disciplines, in their fields of expertise, that they want. But there's a really, it comes with a huge responsibility. The responsibility is to apply the tools of their trade properly. The interesting thing about academic freedom is it's actually a freedom that denies and restricts expression, not simply a freedom that enables expression. How, how does academia work? When you want to publish an article, you submit your manuscript to peer review. A group of experts decides whether what you have to say is worth listening to and repeating or not. And if they think that it should be consigned to the dustbin of history, that's where the manuscript goes. There's no view in academia or in the world that anything that anyone dreams up and wants to publish should be published as an academic publication. That would completely defeat the whole purpose of a university, of its academic mission, which is increasingly it is to find the truth or to develop knowledge or, or increasingly approximate the truth. We never find the truth. But um, academic universities are set on a little pedestal in society, and the general society looks up to universities to guide them with respect to advancing knowledge and saying what is correct and what is false, what is fake and what is genuine to the extent that we can do that. And they rely on the credentialing within the universities to know who to trust when they say that. But that goes with that responsibility then, goes the responsibility on academics to say, we do not think so-and-so should get a PhD, and we will not publish that PhD. It's actually a form of censorship. It marginalizes a whole lot of views, and it marginalizes them not on the basis of, of what the person says, but on the basis of how they have come to those conclusions, whether they have applied an appropriate methodology to come to that. So in that realm of academic freedom, if someone who believes the earth is flat comes along and wants to teach that the earth is flat, um, the, the, the professionals in a university are quite entitled to say, the evidence you have for this does not meet our criteria, and we will not give you a platform to teach and reproduce those views, and we will not publish your article in our journal. So to think that academic freedom is somehow simply a freedom of expression is actually getting it quite wrong. It's about restricting a whole lot of expression, a whole lot of views. And, 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 and that is actually important. That's why universities can continue to claim their mission. That's why they serve society well, if they didn't do that. And we had an interesting example, just to uh, pick one, um, during my tenure. I and others thought that it would be interesting to invite a professor whose name is C.K. Raju, a mathematician from India, uh, who has written a lot about decolonizing mathematics. We wanted to invite him because we thought mathematics is an example where whenever someone says, how can you decolonize science? You know, what does decolonized mathematics look like? How can you have African mathematics or European mathematics? It's, it's an easy way of trivializing the decolonization the a debate the, the, as, as it relates to curricula. And so we thought, well, let's hear what some champion of this view thinks and says. So we, and we, invi we invited him, um, I, not me personally, but I mean, I, was, I don't distance myself from the process. Um, and I actually knew nothing about him, very little about him. 
when he arrived, it caused an outrage in the science faculty. They refused to have anything to do with him. This is, this is the bastion of academic freedom. The scientists are the people who, who shout amongst the loudest. Uh, you know, I don't want to name the names, but if I named them, you would see they write to the papers often about academic freedom. They, the dean of science refused to host the event on which he would speak with, as, a, with, as a panel with others. Um, mathematicians, eventually one or two were persuaded to speak with him. Why did they take this view? Because he had been long discredited. He's a crackpot. He's, a, he's an Indian Hindu nationalist. He rejects most of Western mathematics. His style of debate is to trivialize and mock people who believe, who, who accept a whole lot of things in mathematics, which most mathematicians think that are, are, are sort of fundamental. He claims that no good mass has been produced in the West. It's all come from, from India originally. And, and even in India, I mean, when I started reading about him, I thought, you know, I had thought free speech, panels, have the debate, get, get some of our mathematicians to show why this guy is crackpot or why it doesn't. But you can only do that if you agree on the terms of debate, if you agree on certain rules of what counts as evidence, what doesn't count as evidence. And the mathematicians and others said, we're wasting our time. This has been done all over the world. He's traveled. India and the, the Academy of Science and others have rejected him as crackpot. Why are we wasting our time? All we're going to do is, 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 is give him a platform to promote pseudoscience. So I think that academic freedom is, about restri- is also about restricting what happens there. But that's one zone. The other zone is the public zone. And in the public zone, academic freedom does not apply. In other words, we do not say to a student writing in an article in a, newspaper, in, a, in a student paper, your article has to be defendable using the tools of a discipline. We do not mind if religious society invites a creationist to come and speak and say why the world did not evolve um, or life did not evolve but why it was all created by intelligent design. And in general, um, you may, I mean, there's an interesting argument about whether we should have the two zones because some people say if the purpose of the university is to promote this mission of science and knowledge, why do we even allow this pseudo stuff, fake stuff that happens outside the classroom to be propagated? We're going to uh, somehow send a mixed message to students that this is okay. Um, and there's a view that says the same principles that apply should apply there and that we should therefore be much more restrictive about who gets to speak and what they say. On the other hand, and I think the dominant view, is that in a university, it would be, firstly, it would be wrong to deny people rights that they have protected in the Constitution in a relatively public space, so the freedom of speech, of course, being one of them, an association. The second, probably the stronger argument, is that a secondary purpose of universities is to develop citizens and citizenship. And that the cut and thrust of debate, exposing people to all sorts of views, cranky views and other views, um, and encouraging them to engage with that or letting them engage or just for the entertainment value is all um, good stuff that should happen. And that it it helps develop citizenship um, qualities and skills. And there's some other arguments. I don't want to go into them, but I accept them. I accept that there are two zones. And so the rules that apply for academic freedom would not apply, let's say, to sex appeal. So I think the the concern amongst a lot of academics that we've spoken to is that a move seems to be underway worldwide. It's not just the UCT. This seems to be happening at universities all over the world where the views of the general public have started to be the criteria by which the validity of views in the academic zone are judged. There seems to be a view amongst the social left that transphobia has a certain definition, right? So if you offend trans people in a certain way, that counts as transphobia. The discomfort amongst academics is that when that view starts restricting who gets to say what within the academic sphere, that that might be problematic. The example that we used in, the, in a previous episode was a researcher at UCT, Akhur Tuskir, who wanted to ask certain questions about whether... Um, allowing young children to undergo gender reassignment surgery or hormonal treatments um, was a good thing to do, right? Whether we should permit that or whether it would be harmful. He was not allowed to undertake that research because the view of the general public said that that might be considered offensive or transphobic, right? Um, and, and so should we allow the sort of 
views that are being expressed within the general public or even the general public's sort of general um, normative claims, the, the normative claims that people agree on there, should that be allowed to restrict what academics are allowed to do within the academic space? So first, I'm not, I wonder if you've chosen the best example, because I would have said that the views on, on binary genders versus gender fluidity, which I think underpins transphobia, would you, I don't know if I'm talking, saying, talking about something similar, but this, views on gender fluidity, in my view, are not simply popular views that have somehow intruded and invaded academia and are now restricting it. I think those are academic views. They have been thoroughly researched and good scientists have now come to the view that one's sex changes, one's gender changes, that it's quite possible. Psychologists and others have studied this thoroughly. So the first thing is, as I say, maybe it's not a good example because I don't think this is about the intrusion of popular views. I think this is where science has been going and it's different view. We now understand gender much better than we did 50 years ago. Given that it's changed, um, uh, I don't. I, I still don't think so. It has changed. But, so the issue is not so for me whether one is somehow succumbing to pressure. Uh, but but uh, for for me, if the, the academic freedom says that if this academic and I'm afraid I don't know the case. Maybe I should. I don't know when it happened. But if this academic is an academic credentialed, there should be absolutely no holds barred on anything that he or she wants to research any view she, he or she wants to take, provided it is based on defense. So asking the question about whether it's a good idea to reassign gender before puberty, I think I, I do think it's a legitimate question. It's, I know that it's certainly been asked in other places, and I know that there's quite a lot of research on it now, and there's even research on what proportion of people regret having their gender reassigned, and I think it's around 10%, I stand to be corrected. Um, and so the debate is actually... Is it better to meet the needs of 90% and recognize that 10% get it wrong? Or should all 100% have to suffer or, um, uh, until, until a much older age? So I think that's a, uh, that is absolutely a legitimate academic debate, and I wouldn't want to see that constraint. Similarly, in the free speech zone as opposed to the academic freedom zone, I think that anyone should be free to um, express views on that um, but then you do get into some of the questions of harm and 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 offence and um, and damage. So, yeah, uh, again, can give an example of how difficult it is to define that. We we had a an SRC deputy president a few years ago who um, made a statement while she was acting president at the time. Made a statement when the Supreme Court in in America sang, uh, approved gay marriage. She made a statement that gay marriage is an abomination, homosexuality is a sin, God help us. Um, and the SRC decided to suspend her and remove her from the SRC for uh, speech. You know, they said that, the first they said it was hate speech. They said it was um, unacceptable, it was offensive, that she wasn't allowed to say something like that and shouldn't be allowed to say something like that. Homosexuality is protected in the Constitution and that she was flouting the Constitution by saying this as well. And she then appealed to me, this is the job of vice chancellors to hear everyone's complaints and try to be the judge. Um, she appealed to me to say that um, they were restricting her free speech and that she should not be suspended. So obviously, uh, you know, I looked at it and I understand the, the arguments both sides, um, but I, I argued that what she was saying, firstly, it's not a unique view. Religious societies, for better or worse, are the largest societies on our campus. And I wouldn't be surprised if a very large number, thousands of students, share those views based on their religion. Um, and if we're going to say you can't express that view, either in church or in the university or in, or in mosque, um, then what happens to them? They just get forced underground Um they don't, uh, they don't, there's no debate around them. So now this is not academic freedom. She, the, her realm is the public free speech realm. So I don't want it to get mixed up. And because it's not academic freedom, I think it has to be pr protected much more strongly to say what, whatever she wants. But it mustn't cause, it mustn't incite. But her, her, her speech did not incite. I don't think anyone could argue it was incited. Insightful. I got a, a legal opinion on whether it could be hate speech. They said it's definitely not hate speech. She's allowed to have a view that it's an abomination and that it's sinful, um, and it's her and it's her view. 
So I overruled the SRC and I had to say that the, the, the students elected her. For all we know, they share her views um, and uh, they can't remove her. What they can do is they can remove her as deputy president because the SRC elected her as deputy president to represent the SRC's views. And if as a spokesperson she no longer represents the SRC's views, then they can t- take her off the executive and make her an ordinary member, which is what they did, and she saw out her term or she carried on being on the SRC. So it's a, that's a free speech issue, but it helps I- explain how I think one should protect that very strongly. I want to ask you about decolonization, because I think decolonization might be another example of a case in which society in general or a large number of people in society or a very vocal number of people in society think a certain thing is right, and then they want to impose that on the academic realm, Okay, um, notwithstanding the fact that that academic realm might have certain rules about what is an acceptable view, what is evidence-based, and so forth. And the suggestion came through in the Curriculum Change Framework document quite strongly, and it's something that Progress SA opposed quite strongly, and we, we got a lot of support on, on our opposition to it, was that because um, decolonization demands a certain thing, Right? We need to not hear certain voices within the academic space because of the fact that they're white or they're privileged um, or they represent colonialism. So one of the examples was that you know maybe Darwin shouldn't be taught. Maybe we shouldn't read the works of Rene Descartes, for example. Um, and that's what decolonization demands. Do you think those people sort of elided this distinction between what is acceptable free speech and what is an acceptable limitation on academic freedom? So firstly, I set up that curriculum change working group as vice chancellor. Um, And I think that to some extent in the final report, it went off the rails. In the earlier reports that I saw, the interim reports, and I attended some of the workshops, I thought it was doing well. And I actually don't know because the final report came out, I don't know, quite long after or just it was discussed and debated after I left. So I'm not sure, you know, what happened really, but um, I reject the view that one should study one thing and not the other, African philosophy and not Descartes or Kant or Locke. Um, I reject the view that um, white people can't teach uh, a subject that is primarily about Africa or, or black existence, experience, um, or vice versa. Um, I also reject the view that anyone can instruct an, an academic what to teach, um, because that is a fundamental, one of the fundamental academic freedom principles is that academics individually and the institution uh, academically in, in, uh, have the right to decide what to teach. But indirectly, the institution does influence it because they appoint staff and they fund research. So there is, uh, there is an influence. And that's one of the things that academic freedom, uh, champions need to you know, monitor, help protect academics to some extent against the administration as well, because the administration can steer it. But I worry that the Curriculum Change Working Group report has given decolonizing curricula a bad name and that people will then dismiss uh, the the debates. And I think there are many very constructive uh, suggestions um, that that should be uh, at the very least debated and in my view, even implemented. Um, so, uh, but, but uh, you start, you premised the, the question by saying there's a lot of people who think this. I actually think very few people think this. Um, certainly outside of academia, most people are not familiar with the decolonization debates. They don't know what it's about and they don't care. It's too trivial. When they're struggling with water and service delivery, it's just, it feels like fiddling while Rome burns. And sometimes, you know, I worry that it is. Um, we're talking about uh, a relatively small group of, of loud vocal champions. Um, they're not hugely powerful, actually. They don't constitute the mainstream in academia. Uh, and that's why I think that they should be tolerated and they should have a place and their views should be heard and debated. Well, they certainly seem to form the mainstream in certain departments at UCT. You're right. Of course, they do tend to concentrate in some departments. Uh, um, yeah, I mean, you find relatively few in the science faculty and engineering in medicine and health sciences, more in law, because the nature of the disciplines leads to a much greater sort of subjectivity and ideological foundation to those and and ideas of what constitutes knowledge, whose knowledge, the relationship between power and knowledge. Um, So I think that there's a lot to say for decolonizing curricula. 
unfortunately, um, the interpretation, at least, of that Curriculum Change Working Group's final report, I think, has set back the, 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 the challenge. Right. And I think if you asked maybe 95% of people at UCT or even at Stellenbosch or any university in the country, really, um, what decolonization means to them, what they perceive decolonization to mean, they'll give you the answer that it seems to be a small group of people's racial nationalist interests that they try to enforce on everybody else. Um, by saying who gets to teach, who gets to say and do what, what the color of your lecturer is. Uh, that seems to be the predominant message of decolonization that has come from the student movement. Would you not say that that's the case? Well, I can't dispute what you say is the perception, the predominant perception. I hope people listening to this podcast will recognize that there's a very, there's another approach to decolonizing curricula that has substance and sense. And that instead of a knee jerk reaction, because I actually think that that view is part of a knee-jerk reaction that people, they don't want to grapple with this. They don't want to think about white privilege and other things. And so the easy dismissive thing is to say, you know, gravity was discovered by Newton, so we it's, West, it's a Western, you know, myth or something. We're going to get rid of gravity or we're going to get – I mean, it was ridiculous, and but people latch onto it because it, because it helps them uh, – avoid confronting the much tougher real issues of decolonization and decolonizing curricula. So yes, I can't dispute and I don't know what most people think, but I can say that some of us who are serious about decolonizing curricula have a different view and think that there's something substantial and useful in it. Let's talk a bit about institutional autonomy because I think your experience as a vice chancellor puts you in a very good position to answer questions about this. And we're speaking a lot about TB Davy lectures, and um, this is a, another example of something that was said in the TB Davy lecture. So Jonathan Janssen, who's also been a guest on our show, spoke in 2004 about the challenges facing higher education institutions in South Africa. Um, and he argues that there is a sort of systematic erosion of institutional autonomy um, in South Africa due to certain government policies. He says that the state mostly through funding models, decides what can be taught um, because of the way that it allocates funding to certain disciplines. It also decides who gets to be taught by defining for universities how many students get to enter universities and at what levels they get to enter universities and in what fields they get to enter. Um, and it also chooses to fund certain programs to the exclusion of others. Do you think that Prof. Janssen has a case here in saying that the state is, you know, meddling in the business of South African university or the South African higher education um, institutions. I can't really recall what he was responding to in 2004. I haven't gone back to think, I can't think whether that something had happened. But in general, I would reject that view. Um, so I think that South African universities are amongst the most autonomous in the world. And that although our constitution has not ex expressly protected institutions in the academic freedom, um, ironically, we have been very protected. There was a threat a couple of years ago, four or five years ago, when the Higher Education Act was being amended, and it was, a threat, and, and it was going to give the minister a whole lot of powers, which we challenged, and most of the challenge was accepted. In other words, amendment, amendments were made to the bill, well, but there are still some constraints. But I don't think there are many examples of direct intervention into who to appoint. In fact, I don't know of any into who to appoint. We're talking about individuals who have view, who have particular views, for example, about who to admit, about what a curriculum should be, um, about what should be researched. Now, that's rather specific. At the much more general level, which if this was what Jonathan was saying, to do with funding, that is, in a way, the way the world works. You could tell me that Bill Gates, the Gates and Melinda Foundation, have trampled over academic freedom and university autonomy. Why? Because they have said there are three things we're going to address, TB, malaria, and HIV. We're going to throw billions of rands, millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars at this problem. And what has happened, all the 70, 80% of the scientists in developing countries, and particularly in Africa, have been sucked into the research on HIV, TB, and malaria, because the research goes where the money is. Um, if there's no money to do that, now is that is that trampling? No one's saying you can't do research on some esoteric cancer. 
but you've got to find the money for it. Government in general hasn't uh, steered that too strongly. What they have done, and I think this is perfectly within the realm of account of accountability of universities, they have said we need more science, engineering, and technology graduates because the economy is moving into the fourth industrial revolution. We need to. Uh, we, we're not going to have a low labor economy. We have some jobs for humanities graduates and for lawyers and for accountants, but we've done our human resource planning, and we know that actually it's data scientists. We need 30,000 data scientists in the next um, 20 years if we're not going to export all of our data science to other countries to do. I think it's, 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 it's ethical and responsible governance. For those, for the, and there's only a certain, the pie is only so big. It's not ever expanding. It's, it's, it's reasonable and ethical for government to say, we're giving you this money to teach, but we want you to allocate 40% to SET uh, and, and 30% to humanities or something. Is that, is that interfering with academic freedom or university autonomy? I don't think it is. We're a public university. We have to support national development as well to some extent. If they started telling us you can't, res- you have to research hydrogen cell um, renewable energy and you can't research oil, that would be an intrusion which I wouldn't accept. But they don't do that, and the fa- that mu- that's much more likely to come from the private sector, pharmaceutical industry or engineering industry comes and says we you know we're doing deep mining, we need to figure out how to ventilate a mine that's three kilometers deep. Can you do the research for us? They bring us the money. We'll generally do the research. We have we're free to refuse it. But, uh, but in general, there's not enough money for research. And if the research is good and if we think it's going to be useful, we'll do that. We would probably not do research. We recently, uh, I mean, there's a big debate about whether we should do research on reducing smoking. And uh, the money that came to the university wanted to encourage us to do, res- to do research that would encourage people to switch from cigarettes to vaping. And the argument was that's going to reduce the most toxic form of, 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 of uh, tobacco imbibing, and uh, indeed it would. And if everyone left cigarettes and went to vaping, the world would be a lot healthier than it is now. But it's part of an industry, and it's got its own uh, very significant health defects and you know, a whole lot of reasons why I don't support vaping either, and research that would promote an unhealthy product uh, I wouldn't support. So... Uh, I would, uh, and the university actually sent back, sent the money back from. It was first accepted, then they sent it back from from the foundation that that funds that sort of that sort of research. I think that there are ways that the universities protect themselves. Um, so, for example, many universities create research endowments, and the point of an endowment is that once the money has been given, the people who, if the capital amount is invested, and we only use the interest. We no longer become dependent on the donor or the corporate. So. If you have to go to Gates, as we do now, every year or every two years for another grant, we start doing the research they want us to do. But moreover, we become dependent on them because now we're employing 200 field workers. And if we don't get the next grant, we're going to retrench the field workers. Isn't someone else to take it up? So we start being influenced by their agenda. And that may not be a bad thing, but we're certainly not free to do what we want. However, if you can put the money into an endowment and you're only living off the interest, you don't have to go back to the donor. Provided the original brief was fairly open, um, you you can do the research on whatever you want, whatever research you want. So that's one way. Another is, for example, we have a lot of endowed chairs uh, where a company will say, we'll give you a chair for electrical engineering or something or for Alzheimer's disease. Um, and we make it very clear in the agreement that the donor has no role in appointing the, 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 the incumbents of the chair or future incumbent and that the money, once it's endowed, can't be taken back. Uh, even if they don't like the research that's coming out of it. So I think universities have a whole lot of instruments to protect their autonomy, and I don't think that's the major. We've got much bigger problems um, than, than, than government telling us what we must research and what we must teach. So one of the academic freedom issues that we've concentrated on in the past year is the issue of Israeli academic boycott. Now, the BDS movements, as you know, um, wants to enforce a boycott of Israeli institutions and scholars at all South African universities, but it was most seriously entertained, I think, at UCT, um, where the motion actually came before Senate, it came before Council, and has recently been rejected. Now, one of the arguments that the BDS movement makes is that UCT particularly is beholden to the private ideological interests of certain Jewish donors 
who don't want to see an academic uh, boycott of Israel. And so the university, um, in order to appease those donors, doesn't want to you know, lose their uh, the massive investment that those donors have made in, into the university, um, goes with an anti-boycott agenda in order to appease them. Do you think that these allegations have any substance? Was that your experience as Vice-Chancellor? Unfortunately, I think they do have substance, but I don't want that to be interpreted as the reason why the the BDS position was rejected. So I think the BDS position was rejected because of a commitment to free exchange of academics, the right to engage with any academic anywhere in the world, the right to hear their views, the right to collaborate with them, to publish their articles, etc. That was the reason. But let's say that it was not about academic freedom and there'd been some other issue. Um, uh, I, I think that universities are very sensitive to their funding um, and that that does, uh, unfortunately, on, 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 on ranges of issues, influence. So I mean, the point I was making about an endowment is an endowment protects it and you're not protected if you have an ongoing relationship. <clears throat> UCT, like many universities, not only gets money from individual alumni, many of whom support Israel, whether they're Jewish or not. In fact, I suspect many, probably more, who are not Jewish still nevertheless support Israel. But we also collaborate with many universities around the world. Those universities have taken a very strong view. I don't know any university of substance that has taken a pro-boycott view uh, with respect to Israel. And in fact, they take strong anti-boycott views. And I think that we would be creating a lot of difficulties for those universities and their academics in collaborating with us if we took a view that stood out from them. So we're also under pressure from other universities and from our peers um, because it matters to us that we work with them. And unless we thought that the academic boycott by UST of Israel was going to be a such a significant um, factor in, in the global politics of the Middle East or was going to be the straw that broke the camel's back because there was such a momentum. I could, I could even imagine possibly, and this was in a way the, the, the situation with the anti-apartheid academic boycott. You know, there was a wide-scale boycott. Many academics and institutions were boycotting South Africa and an extra few made a big difference. Now, as it happens, I don't think that the academic boycott was significant in breaking apartheid or in defeating apartheid. I think other boycotts were. I think the sports boycott was. And I think that uh, the financial boycotts, trade boycotts were. I don't think the academic boycott was because it was no ways, it was, it was very selective. All Afrikaans universities were free to have all the exchange they wanted. And the liberal universities were the ones that were affected by the boycott. The Afrikaans universities hardly felt it at all. Um, and 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 the right-wing academics from around the world ignored it, so they all flooded in. But the left-wing academics didn't come near us, uh, except with permission of the ANC, and that itself had all sorts of problems because then it was giving a political movement the right to decide whether your political views were okay or not. So it had, in my view, a counter effect of bringing in lots of conservative academics and allowing conservative academics to go out and 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 silencing or or or, or marginalizing that. So there's a view that says that the role of the university is to protect space for debates, to protect space for learning, to protect space for um, the expression of views, which, as you said, have withstood the test of certain credentials that they have to be evidence based, etc. Um, but once that kind of threshold is passed, the university needs to protect those views at all costs. Okay. Then an interesting point is raised about what about when the rest of society, for example, protest movements, protest movements on campus, etc., try and disrupt that sort of sacred space for learning and debate. What does the university do then? Does the university take a really hard line on any form of disruption? Um, or does the university permit those kinds of disruptions into the sacred space of academia? I think I don't, I don't necessarily want to use the language of disruption because that covers so many different things. And then again, you know, the individual cases get lost. But maybe this example, that another real example could help um, indicate how I and my executive saw this. You know, I, I, I'm using the first person. I do want to emphasize that I make very few decisions alone. We, 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 have, we had an executive which discusses all of these things. Um, so we had two academics, um, still at UCT, they, they still at UCT, who do a lot of research on minimum wages. 
And uh, they argued that the national minimum wage was bad for society, for development, and particularly for unemployed people, unemployed workers. And they'd been publishing and really good sociological and economic work. I think it's good work, um, peer-reviewed, et cetera. Um, but basically in the, uh, being discussed and debated by other academics. But then a court case arose where some companies in KwaZulu-Natal were paying below, were found to be paying below the minimum wage. Um, and so these two academics were brought in, I don't know if you remember it was one or both of them, as expert witnesses to say why these companies should be allowed to pay below the minimum wage and why that was actually in the interests of the workers and other people in their community. Um, but the union involved, which had a big branch, and in fact its head office is in Cape Town because this is all in clothing and textiles. So clothing textiles workers union here in Cape Town were outraged by this view and felt that the university was now somehow interfering in labor uh, policy, labor issues, taking sides, anti-workerist, um, undermining the minimum wage policy, which was a policy. I mean, obviously this was a national policy. And uh, they notified me that they were going to hold a protest on campus. And not only that, but they wanted the protest to go to march up to the upper campus and to march to the offices of these academics where they planned to sing and toy toy and picket and to give them a memorandum. And part of their motivation, I know, through informal chats was they wanted to uh, go through the upper campus, not only to be at the offices, but because that they could mobilize a whole lot of students who were at lunch on the upper campus to make it into a, a much more substantial and bigger protest. And I, I was really uh, in a dilemma about this because on the one, firstly, it was unprecedented in the sense that I was not aware of any protests on campus by outsiders. I mean, there's lots of protests on campus, but they're usually people who are part of the community. Um, and so I didn't really have a precedent for this. I was concerned that banning such a protest would be a direct infringement of free speech. Here is a group that has a view. They clearly have a legitimate vested interest in this issue. They represent the workers, etc. They're in a court case. Um, so on, if, I, if I were to ban the protest, you know, you could just see the, the, the reaction, you know, banning free speech. You only want to hear one side, not the other side, etc. Um, on the other hand, if we allowed the protest as they had it, as they wanted it, this would become open season to any group of, 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 of lobbyists, any group of protesters. I mean, the next thing, people who are unhappy about service delivery of, of electricity would, could come and protest on campus. Um, they would find an excuse or a reason to criticize some people. The fossil fuel people from around the world would come and criticize the people doing oil and gas research. I mean, and how, and the campus could, how would one manage a campus like that? Mainly I was concerned that that would create a chilling effect on the academics. That if academics knew that they say, if they say something controversial, the next thing there's going to be a mob or a crowd picketing their offices, their cars, uh, mobilizing students, they'd just steer away from that sort of research or they wouldn't publicize their views. So it seemed to me the job of the university administration in protecting academic freedom is to protect those academics and to prevent an environment that creates that chilling effect, okay? So therefore, we couldn't allow the protest there. So the solution we came up, we came up with, <coughs> which fortunately the union accepted, um, was that they would hold their protests, but they would hold them at my offices, the administration offices, which is down on the lower campus, about a kilometer away from the, where most of the academics are, and I would receive the memorandum and I would convey the memorandum to the academics. I need to say that the, academic, the two academics involved had no problem about the protest being outside their door. They're, they're street fighters. They, they've been there. They, you know, it wasn't their issue. It was my issue um, because I was much more concerned about the implications of this. Now, how does that relate to the discussion? That relates very directly to the discussion we had about academic freedom and freedom of speech and these two different zones. In the... Offices of the academic and the lecture theaters and the seminar rooms, academic freedom prevails, which means that you cannot come there and promote a view simply because it's popular or because it's your view or because it affects your vested interests. You can come there and promote a view that is based on 
the tools of the discipline. And in fact, I said to the General Secretary of the Union, we're happy to organize a debate. Uh, there'll be rules of debate. There'll be speakers on each side. It'll be a, a calm and civil debate where you'll explain your arguments. But you can't explain arguments in a mass protest with pickets. No one can hear them, and they can't hear the counter-arguments. So the academic realm, to protect academic freedom, meant that protest could not happen there. But the public realm, which the university also has in the interests of democracy and civil citizenship and protecting free speech, meant that we would hold the protest somewhere else and the voice would still be heard by the media and they would take the photographs. So I must challenge you on this because I think you're also aware of the fact that several of our other guests have criticized your decision in the TB Davy lecture case with Fleming Rose, um, the, the Danish journalist who was disinvited from UCT. Is there not an argument to be made that says that Fleming Rose should have had his academic freedom protected, that if people disagreed with him, they should have come to the lecture and challenged him using the tools of the discipline, using the tools of debate, and said, Fleming Rose, we disagree with you for these reasons and had a debate about it. Instead, what seemed to have happened was that there were certain people in the university community who were aggrieved by his invitation and they threatened violence. And for that reason, he was disinvited. Um, should the university not have stepped in to protect that kind of sacred space of debate using the tools of debate and, and, and academic rigor instead of just giving in to sort of the demands of, of a violent mob, as it were? Okay, so you're, you're, first let me say this was the most difficult decision I took in my whole term, this decision to disinvite him. But some of the way you're reflecting the history is not accurate. Um, and so I just want to restate at least my version of that history. Um, yes, it would have been better. I think the net effect was a an abrogation of academic freedom. I don't think it can be. Def- I don't think it's a defence of academic freedom. If you're asking me, was academic freedom compromised because of the disinvitation? My answer is yes. It's not not it's not unequivocal. We need to understand why and what were we weighing up. And again, it's about the principles and the consequences and the, the a whole lot of ripple effects. The second thing is that, okay, so the invitation went out a year before the lecture. That's how it does because it's an overseas lecture. They have busy schedules. I assigned the invitation not knowing who Fleming Rose was because I just trusted the Academic Freedom Committee. So I actually signed the invitation. Three months before the lecture, we start advertising the lecture in the media. And at that point, I start getting phone calls, not actually from people on campus, from people off campus, from various communities, but one community in particular, the Muslim community in particular, who say, do I know what we've done here? This person is, and they call him Islamophobic, but they also say often there are rights and that the aftermath of what he did, you know, do your, do your readers know he, he was the editor who published the cartoons of Muhammad. One of those cartoons, for example, is a picture of Muhammad with a turban, with a bomb in the turban. Um, and they say this is representing uh, Islam the, as a religion that promotes terrorism. It gets generalized to Muslims in general. It it's, feeds into a stereotype that Muslims are, are terrorists um, and that they can't be trusted, that they must be profiled, that they must be screened at airports, da da And that inviting him, that he should never have done that, that the fact that he did that showed a complete insensitivity, if not an act of Islamophobia, and that inviting him here is like inviting is inviting an Islamophobe. Now, I don't actually believe he is Islamophobic. Let me say that, but I know many people do, and they were the, these people were telling me that this will cause outrage, it will cause riots on campus, and it will cause um, and probably violence. So the first thing I did was to say, "Am I the first person to encounter this problem?" Can't be. I met with about 20 other vice chancellors from around the world. I'm part of an organization called Worldwide Universities Network, and there happened to be a meeting the next week or two, and I I said, I want to discuss this with you guys. What do you do? They say, why did you invite him? We would never invite him. They say, okay, so there's two different kinds of restricting academic freedom. There's one which is you just don't invite him in the first place. The other is you've made a mistake, you've got to withdraw it. That's much worse, I know, in the optics, but actually they're not any different in reality. So that's the first thing. Then I think it was Princeton um, said we did invite him, but and we allowed him to come. We after we, and and we 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 got a similar reaction, and we allowed him to come. But this is what we had to do to protect academic freedom. 
We had to have an RSVP list. We, we, we sent out invitations. We had an RSVP list. We screened the RSVP list to make sure that no one coming would present some sort of threat to, uh, to Fleming Rose, the speaker himself, or would be so disruptive of the thing that the lecture couldn't take place by getting up and we then had them meet at a secret place. We didn't publicize where the, where the speech was going to be held. We had them meet at a secret place. We screened them when they got onto the bus, and then we took them to the secret place where the, where the meeting was held, and it went okay. Now, you could say that shows a true commitment to academic freedom. It might be possible to get away with that in Princeton, although I tell you, I don't think they'd get away with that today. You know, Since then, they've changed the names of the buildings of slave owners, and they've become much more sensitive to these issues. But can you imagine at UCT some sort of profiling that would say who can come into the lecture and who can't come into the lecture? And can you imagine if and the, the, the TB Davy lecture traditionally is a public lecture. We advertise in the papers. It's open to the public. And we want everyone to come and we want all students to come. So, so the, there would be no way that we could restrict access based on some sort of profiling. Once it was in, this was not the first lecture that would have been disrupted. We had a Kennedy lecture the year before, a commemoration of Robert Kennedy, disrupted by people who said, you know, never mind, but uh, that would be a deviation. But many lectures have been disrupted, and I don't sanction that. I think it's terrible. But there was no chance this lecture was actually going to happen and be heard by any of us unless we put him in a box in a studio. And, uh, and So I said to the Academic Freedom Committee, I didn't say he can't come. I went back to Academic Freedom and said, would you consider doing two things? <clears throat> One is having a panel discussion where he can be on a panel with other people who have different views. And secondly, postponing it to another time because I didn't mention, but this was in the invitation went out in 2015, just after Rhodes must fall. The lecture was going to happen 2016 in the peak of the um, violence and disruption over fees must fall mainly. A nationwide thing, not just used to think, but the campus was tense. There had already been lots of um, disruption um, this would have given another, this would have poiled, poured oil on the fire. I mean, it would just have exploded. And not just because of the off-campus disruptions, <clears throat> which I think would have happened anywhere, but could have been managed somehow. It would have fractured the campus. It would have, um, to the extent that we are concerned about social cohesion and creating an environment where people feel comfortable and can talk and can air their views, that would have all been wiped out. We would have just had a much worse situation. And I don't believe the lecture would have ac actually happened. So I'd said postpone it to a time when, when we were back in normal time, so to speak. The Academic Freedom Committee refused to do that. So I said, well, if you, if you won't, and if you won't withdraw the lecture, then I'm going to withdraw the invitation. And I, before I did that, I considered, like I, I um, went to the council of the university, which is a body of 30 people, excuse me, representing many stakeholders, including government, local government, independent people, donors. I think there might have been three or four people who voted against withdrawing the invitation. And um, this is not a max price thing. This was a university council decision. Um, and it was done in the understanding the context, understanding the consequences, regretting that it was necessary, saying another time, the, the issue that the notice I sent out to campus said, you know, we hope maybe we can invite him back in two years' time or in an, at another time. We should have made clear that it's not that we didn't want to hear his views or that we didn't think that was legitimate to, to have a person like that. It was saying that because of the general perception of who he is and what he represents, that would, the consequences outweighed the, the thing. And I regret it, but I think when you're a manager running the university, as I started out, out this podcast saying, one of your jobs is to make sure the university survives. One thing I do regret in terms of my own decisions is I phrased in my notice to the campus to explain why I did this. I gave most of these reasons, but I also said that I thought that this could, this would actually, that having him there would harm academic freedom um, and that withdrawing the invitation could assist academic freedom. Now, what I regret is that I said it in a very shorthand. You can't, no one reads more than a page and a half in these things. And as you can hear, I'm verbose and I can't explain things short, quickly. Um, there is some logic to that, and it's a longer argument. But, um, but in the shorthand version that it came out, it just looked like 
George Orwell double speak, you know, and, and I regret having put that in. I didn't need to. There were plenty of other good reasons why we couldn't have him. Um, and that wasn't central to it. And that actually is what many people have focused on in criticizing. But it ha- the, the reason just very briefly is to do with the climate that in, in an environment where it's fairly calm and normal times, I think you can have a speak like that. You can promote academic freedom. Academic freedom meaning people, no, let me rather say freedom of speech. In other words, people feeling they are able to talk and say unpopular things. <clears throat> in, a, in an environment which is hostile, where political correctness reigns, where um, people are intimidating other people because of their politics, you don't have academic freedom and you, and you don't have freedom of speech. And I believe that having Fleming Rose there at that time would have aggravated what the challenges we were already dealing with, with people feeling, whites feeling that they couldn't speak in class sometimes, um, you know, because it would have added to the whole view of uh, the, 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 sort of the, this is just a colonial university. They, give, they care nothing about black people or about Muslim people. They bring in this European to speak at this moment in time. They promote these views. I mean, this is the last point, that if he had been invited to speak by a student society, it would have been no problem at all. But he was invited to give an eponymous lecture of the university, the TB Davy lecture. Now, when you invite a speaker to give a lecture of the university, they represent the values of the university. That's why you've chosen them. It's a bit like choosing a, graduate, a commencement speaker. And it would be, it was absolutely wrong for UCT to say he represents our values. So that's part of, I think we need to leave the discussion there for now. Um, I must thank you for a very interesting and enlivening discussion and also for bringing a point of view on academic freedom that's different to the ones that we've heard expressed in the rest of the series so far. Um, so thank you for that. Uh, to our listeners at home, um, if you want to continue this conversation online, we'd really enjoy that. I'm sure Dr. Price might get involved in that online discussion as well. Um, you can find us on Twitter at Progress RSA. You can also follow our page on Facebook. That page is called Progress SA. You can also visit our website, www.progress.org.za. Until next time, until the next series of this podcast, if that happens, keep thinking, even if it's dangerous.